Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. This podcast is called Coming from Left Field, the operative word being left. We support labor rights, workers' protection, progressive taxation, and the use of government policies to address income and wealth inequity. Also include opposition to militarism and imperialism. So how is the left doing? Actually, not very well. Frankly, a dumpster fire, disorganized and under the boot of neoliberalism. What's behind the decline of the U.S. left? Well, let's discuss with our guest today. Well, warm greetings. Glad to have you, Stan, on our on our podcast today. Well, thanks for uh, having me here. And uh, Stanfield Smith, and I I came across you uh, by reading a couple of your articles uh, that you published on the What's the Matter with the New Left. I really liked them, and I emailed Greg, and I said I'd like to get this guy on our podcast, and he said, I know Stan. <laughs> I've known Stan for quite a while. Very bright guy. I agree mostly on everything that he says, but uh, uh, yeah, he said let's let's get him on. So that's why he reached out to you, and that's why you're on our podcast. So tell me a little bit about yourself. You're in Chicago, my old stomping grounds, and you're with the Chicago ALBA Solidarity Group. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's the the Alba, the Alba countries is Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Bolivia, and some other countries. They used to also have Ecuador before the right wing took over. Uh, initially, we were a, the Chicago Committee to Free the Cuban Five, but after they got freed, I figured, well, maybe we should just do more solidarity work with these Alba countries in Latin America. So that's what I've been working on. And uh, you did you just got back from Venezuela, Greg told me. Miami. Yeah, Miami. Was in Venezuela last year for the election and us also in Nicaragua last year, last fall. Yeah, oh. and I was just in Miami at the trial of Alex Saab, who's being framed up. Uh well, let let's let's chat about that in a in a bit. I want to spend some time discussing that. We had um Dan Kavalik on uh, talking about the the pink tide that uh, seems to be uh, going on in Central America, but you're you're a you're you're a prolific writer. I mean, I'm looking at the the you've published in Counterpunch, Descent Voice, uh, ML Today, Black Agenda, Monthly Review, I, and I'm and I know there's a whole bunch more. Uh, you're um, and I'm assuming you have a regular blog also that that's available or well, I have my own website, chicagoalbasolidarity.org, which is mostly I got it started for uh publicize our activities. Uh -huh. But then I started writing articles also. But some of these places now won't like Counterpunch won't publish my stuff. <laughs> Is that because of the Google algorithms are uh, crushing you, or uh, they don't want they, they're not publishing? They don't like. Uh, well, they're not going to tell me, but uh, <laughs> they don't like my politics. Have Have you been banned from Twitter yet? I mean, do you have that badge? No, I haven't gone on Twitter yet. Well, I don't think you can get banned now, right? <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, it's turned How's out it to be furor, furor that uh, he's not banning people. Good. Well, listen. Let Let's start by talking about your the articles you published that behind the decline of the U.S. left. And you did two, you did two articles. The uh, first article was the national security censorship of anti-imperialism vo voices in the latest phase in the long-term strategy to divide and control the left. Um, when I do these podcasts, I do a um, short introduction and basically the introduction is saying, you know, I'm a proud lefty, but the left is a, it's a dumpster fire. It's just not doing very well. And, you know, the question is why, and is it, is it something new? Is it a slow process? And you address that in your, 
in in your articles. Tell me a little bit of, about some of your thoughts about that. Well, usually I write articles when I want to work out my own ideas on some issue that I haven't worked out my ideas on. So then on this issue, it's like, well, people always are like faulting the left for being so weak and incompetent. And I was like, well, I guess for a while I also thought the same way. But then I think, no, this is a. I don't really believe that's the whole story. I think there's the the government was behind destroying the left. And so I started reading more about the history of the left and government repression of the left and also what's going on now since especially I guess since the time of Russia Gate with all the censorship of all alternative media and left voices that became a and I started reading some books about the repression of the left in the 50s and 60s that I mentioned in the first article like the cultural cold war it's like yes there's a long history since the end of world war ii when it started the cold war about 1946 where the government's gone on a major campaign to uh destroy the left as much as it can and also divide the left as much as it can by supporting the left that's kind of um, will accommodate itself to the government, like what they call the compatible left. And really the big uh, the big turning point was the big purges of the left wing from the working class in the late 40s and early 50s. I mean, the, the left wing exists to be part of the working class. If it's not part of the working class, it's just kind of like floating in a balloon off in space somewhere, not connected to its base. It doesn't really have any base outside of the working class. That's what the left is supposed is. It should be, has always been. Bill Up Haywood, there. Gene Debs, Mother Jones. Yeah, you wouldn't go back then and think of there's some left outside of the working class left. But right, now, right, yeah, right. the left is seeing as something outside the working class. You know, so how that basically happened with the what's called the McCarthyite purges that happened before McCarthy really became big figure. But it was a major operation to destroy it, and it has uh, the left has never really recovered from it. Like I think I mentioned, what, 1947 to 1952 in one of the articles that 6.6 .6 million people were investigated by the FBI then. And that's a huge number of people. I mean, that's basically, um, if you weren't investigated and lose your job or something, you would at least be intimidated not to be pursuing uh, progressive activities. And that's basically what happened. It wasn't until, you know, the civil rights movement started that it started to initiate a new era of uh, popular struggle. But even there, we know how much the FBI was out focused on right. trying to destroy it with their like their goal was to make sure there was no black messiah. And that's basically probably yeah, we got rid of any red messiah. Now we'll get rid of a black messiah. And they're still doing that. You know, we had um, uh, uh, Adam Hochschild on, American Midnight. Uh, he's a historian that speaks about the right at, right around the World War One and all of the suppression that occurred there uh, with the... Um, you know, the little citizens councils and the, the complete censorship of the media, the postmaster would not let any um, left leaning or union propaganda uh, go through. And it so this battle has been going on. I mean, your article didn't specifically go back that far, but you really detailed clearly that this is not a casual occurrence. This is a systematic, structured approach in destroying uh, the union movement or progressive movements or socialist movements 
or black uh, liberation movements and it's 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 worked right <laughs> well yeah well i did mention a little about you know the palmer raids and all that right and, right, right but uh the left rebuilt itself soon after that in the 1930s when they had a new red square scare in the 1940s the left has not really rebuilt itself that's the problem well, I right. think one of the one of the the virtues of Stan's work, uh, Adam's book is uh, an incredible book, and and it's getting all kind of play, which is welcome. But it does have a kind of narrow focus, and it, you could read it in such a way that that was a unique moment in American history. That was a time when there was this great repression, and that's an anomaly, and it's unusual. Whereas Stan is really, I, I give you know I, all the credit in the world because he. He shows it as a kind of a process, a constant process. It's always been the case that the government has tried to suppress the working classes. They've always tried to suppress the representatives of the working classes. They've always tried to suppress the rising of nationally oppressed people and so on and so forth. It's a pattern and it's existed for a long, long time and it exists today and it will continue. And I think anyone that examines it as a pattern, the way that Stan outlines very nicely, will understand it's a product of capitalism. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. It is the feature of cap capitalism in the 20th century into the 21st century. They will repress these popular movements. Yeah, you could go back to you know the repression back in 1877 against the working class movement, which was pretty ferocious, where they killed hundreds of people. I mean, that's the closest we got to an actual national strike. And you go back in history further to what was it, the Dobbs Rebellion or something right after Shays, the, Shays, Shays Rebellion at the Shays after rebellion. revolution. Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, to think, you know, was you know, you read what the First Amendment says about freedom of speech is like there'd be no laws that'll bridge freedom of speech. <laughs> you see, like that. That's just totally ignored all right. through U.S. history. You get to really see that U.S. is a has always been a police state, and it still is a police state. You know, I'm 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 had finished this book, uh, Angela Davis's biography. She's re-releasing it, and she mentions how her hero wow. that got her into Ph.D. program in philosophy in Germany was a. Uh, Man, Mal Malcus, the the you know, Malcusa, Malcusa, and and her regard for him is just is is prominent. Um, he was on the CIA uh, pay, pay pay list, and you uh, you you sent me an article, Stan, about one of my heroes, Carl <laughs> Carl Rogers. Carl Rogers was also in cahoots with the CIA in uh, working with them on you know, mind control and so forth uh, on the on the on the lowdown. You know, this was and when you peel back the cover of how the government has um how, how would you how would you say it kind of infiltrated these these left-leaning people and kind of getting a getting a hold of them. Obama's father, you know, same 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 thing. Um, if you're at a cocktail party and you bring this up, they think you're a nut. But you know, when you read your when you read your articles and you see the footnotes and how you clearly, uh, you know, document what's going on. This is this is not common knowledge, but it should be. Am I am I relatively co correct in portraying your opinions there? Oh uh, yes, I think it's uh, people kind. I think people fail to understand. They're also, it's not just government and the FBI and the CIA, but it's just corporate funding. If you want to start some organization or maintain an organization, you need to get funding. And if you want to get some court funding from a foundation, I mean, they're all basically corporate foundations, though it doesn't look like you're actually taking funding from a corporation, it just looks like a foundation, then you're gonna have to like gear what you do and say to what keeps you getting their funding. 
And that's one way, key way in which they control the left here by, if you keep your things within bounds, you'll get funding. If you go out of bounds, we just cut you off. And a good example of that now is democracy now with all the fun corporate funding they get and how big they've become and how basically they basically uh, apologize. I wouldn't say they support you as far they apologize for it, cover it up or make it more palatable to people, give people the misconceptions about what the U.S. is really doing, like in the Ukraine or what it was doing in Syria or Libya or Nicaragua. And there's massive uh, foundation funding for all sorts of uh, alternative media uh, websites and newspapers, you know, like in these times. Yeah, I could just, I list a lot in my article that get the funding. The Ford, the Ford Foundation. Right, and Soros and... I don't there used to be this Tides Foundation. I don't know if it still exists. And then you also have, which kind of surprised me, <laughs> I would have added something in my article that some people from these organizations that are funded by corporations sit on the boards of other uh, websites that, uh, you know, to us, they look very good, like what Co Covert Action Bulletin, whatever it's called now, Covert Action Magazine. I sent them that article and they wouldn't publish it. And I asked them why, and they said I, they didn't think I substantiated my case and that I should, some of the board members thought I was didn't substantiate my case and, and, and I needed to uh, go into it more. And I so I asked, well, who on the board had what to say about it and what did they want me to substantiate? I didn't really get an answer, but I went and looked on, well, who's on the board of Covert Action Magazine? And it has one person on the board who works for Democracy Now!, one person on the board who works for NACLA, which is funded by the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation, one person on the board from Pacifica Foundation, which has also been funded by, uh, oh, I put it in my article. I'm not exactly, I forget what, some corporate foundations. So people who work for these organizations, they, I mean, these all like, you know, NACLA or something, they sit on boards of other organizations and they can control what goes into their in their articles. A lot of their articles are very good, but then, I mean, you can't really say, see what they're not publishing, like in Counterpunch, you cannot see what they reject. Right. But I, from talking to people, I know what kind of people you'd say, they don't publish what I write anymore. Like Glenn Ford said, they stopped publishing his stuff soon after Alexander Coburn died. So it's very, yeah. Uh, it's it's often very hard to see that how these things are controlled and you can't really see like uh, you look at a good website or a good newspaper uh progressive newspaper you don't you don't see what they're not covering mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then you don't really see what they reject and they don't want to publish you just see what they do publish and a lot of it looks good and you fail to see the what they're want to keep hidden from you. That's another way in which they control the left. Or and virtue, virtue, uh, a virtue of, of, of uh, Stan's research is that he follows the old maxim, which is not terribly complicated or theoretical, and that's follow the money. Follow, yeah. Mm. I mean, you follow the money, and if, but that's not just follow the money when you see the money. It's look for the money when you don't see the money. Look for the the nexus, the connections between things, uh, and and do they make sense? Do they color the 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 opinions of people who are espousing views and not exposing the connections that are there uh, for their views? And I, I think he's done a good job of that. And the cultural, uh, what's the name of the book? Uh, uh, Sanders uh, Stoner Sanders book, uh, Cultural Cold War. Uh, Cold, Cold War. War. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. 
it's frightening in terms of what it exposes in terms of connections in terms of people being essentially purchased or bought and we shouldn't go overboard it doesn't mean they're bought and purchased on everything there are some right. things they could say that are quite good right. there are some things they can say that give them credibility because they're quite good but in the end their independence is challenged and that's what we're talking about a lack of independence except for a few of us freaks like stan and myself and others that aren't aren't getting funded by anybody right. most people have these connections and and they're reflected in their opinions you you take a a view like um, uh totalitarianism which comes out of uh of uh cold war you know everybody bought into it uh, um what's her name's book uh, Hannah Arendt, Hannah Arendt, Hannah Arendt's yeah. book on uh, totalitarianism. So everybody buys into this, and it's not here, of course. This is the, the land of the free. It's everywhere else. But when you read the cultural uh, Cold War, you can understand that every aspect of U.S. intellectual life was touched by the CIA and by money. And then you ask yourself, how is this really different from what's described as totalitarianism? When the National Student Association is is totally created and infiltrated by the cia and on and on and on and it's very naive not to see this and not to think of it and it explains why stan's work is not appearing in 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 more prestigious or more widely known uh sources like counterpunch i think yeah and i think you're right stan it's what it's like what you said what they don't what they don't cover you know is uh, last night, I, I I enjoy reading The Onion. I get a laugh out of that. And I also enjoy watching Tucker Carlson. And last night, after probably the biggest committee meeting in the last decade with uh, Trump and their releasing, his whole program was just the people at the border and picture after picture of people coming from Venezuela and, and the hordes of these people coming over. Not one mention of why they might be coming over, but <laughs> where our policies in Venezuela might have, and Honduras might have contributed to this, I is just, um, you know, it's just Stephen Miller writing scripts for him of how to how to approach this. So, uh, and there's, you know, there's a problem at the at the border and I, you know, good discussions can be had about that, I think, and, and the whole asylum process, why we get the, why we get a pass in the asylum, international asylum process. Um, but I, it, it creates, and I love your term. I, did you coin the term, the compatible left? No. The, the compromised? That That's not you? No, that was one of those books. I forget. Cultural Cold War? I forget which one. Tell, tell me about, I, and that's kind of what you're, it, it's a, it's compromising the left in order to kind of shape them to compliance for the bigger scheme of things of controlling them. Is that relatively right, Greg? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I like your stand though. I talk too much. Let's stand talk about this. <laughs> yeah. One thing I was going to say before is like, if you like, don't want to get a job like in Target or in a factory or something or you know, work full-time as a teacher or something or be a professor. Well, a professor, yeah, you'd have to. And you wanted to work in some progressive NGO and you got a job in it, then that NGO is funded by somebody and they're going to be like, the head of the NGO is going to be like telling you well, you're going to work here with us and this is what you're going to do. And this, you're not going to be, well, they won't be saying you're not be doing that. You're going to be doing, they'll just be doing this thing. So they, if you want to commit yourself like for your life as a job, as an income to working for some progressive NGO, then you, you censor yourself that way by, they're going to be telling you what you do want to do. That's another way they controlled it. I think uh, the most obvious way was in the early 70s when I guess Nixon set up all these uh, social service organizations and a lot of people in the, in the progressive and black movement went and work in all these organizations and just kind of removed all these people from the... Uh, the act activist struggle. They were they got regular jobs and they were doing something that seemed pretty progressive, though it kind of uh, 
limited how far the real revolutionary movement was going to go because they've been basically co-opted. So there's a lot of ways that the rulers in this country can control the left. Many things that are, they do it very well behind the scenes, so most people don't even know it. I mean, you could work for a progressive NGO and not even really be aware that the, how you're being manipulated to not covering some or working on some controversial issue. On that note, Stan, tell us about the Democratic Party. Well, it's... Uh... <laughs> how does it work? Uh, dumpster fire? You want you need help with uh, some... Well, that... that uh... Compatible left basically was uh, a left that was oriented towards working in the Democratic Party. You can make social change by trying to work with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And once you go in that route, you're going to be, I've seen that enough with people who I've known over the years, you start censoring what you're doing and saying because you don't want to piss off people in the Democratic Party who you're trying to get to vote your way. I mean, it just happens all the time. And so you, they start, uh, like if you want to work on defending Honduras against the coup, then you don't want to start talking about defending the Sandinistas in Nicaragua against the U.S. trying to overthrow the government because... Uh, these politicians are all against the Sandinistas, or you don't want to be defending Venezuela against the U.S. trying to overthrow that government because you'll lose your friendly relations with the certain politicians. Of course, the Democratic Party, I mean, right now, basically, the national security state has basically moved over into their bases now in the Democratic Party. Before, it was basically both Republicans and Democrats, but now when Trump was, Trump was so critical of a lot of national security state uh, operations, like in the Middle East, condemning the wars in the Middle East, and him meeting with Kim Jong-Kim you know? in, I forget his first name now, which one, in North Korea, well, that really pissed them off, like... Yeah, we cannot trust this guy to really get out the national security state programs we have around the world. He also said Putin was okay. And when he was asked once, well, do you believe Putin or the CIA reports about interference? He said, yeah, I believe Putin. Now that uh, he just became seen as someone they could not trust to be president. And they came to move over into the more aligned with the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton and Biden. And you could also see it like with all the Brennan, all the heads of the CIA and FBI and former ones and, and generals are on all these uh, Democratic Party uh, TV stations like CNN and so on, MSNBC. Right. So right now... I mean, you, people used to think the Democrats were more progressive, but now really the, um, the national security state's more aligned with them now. Well, let, let's talk about one thing. Let's talk about Twitter and uh, the new Twitter dump that uh, Matt Taibbi um, is reporting on. If, if he's correct, the uh, FBI took all of the data sent it off to a company that scrubbed it and developed algorithms for who to suppress or not suppress, came back to Twitter and Facebook and Apple, and were actively telling them what they wanted to elevate or de-elevate in their search histories. And you had um, Chris, uh, Chris, Chris Hedges said that Truth Dig went from uh, in, in a period of uh, less than a year, getting 7,000 7, hits down to under 200,000 hits. And a lot of the articles that he wrote literally were not showing up on Google searches. So you have a federal agency 
come to a private company and say, we want you to specifically elevate or de-elevate um, this information. You have one Democrat who has stood out and said, we need to do something about, about that. It, people are more interested in Biden's son's dick's pics than they are in literally media being controlled by a handful of people and the government in collusion with them about what we should and should not discuss or how we should provide information. I, that's crazy. And the problem is, is it works. You know, when we invaded Guatemala after the, you know, we we dumped all these leaflets and and propaganda, and the, and it worked. It worked. It had an effect. It had an effect in changing people's opinion. Certainly, manipulating search algorithms is going to do that. Also, um, this is in plain sight. But I'm I'm not hearing. Democrats say anything about this, you know, you know, the Republicans are, are, are obviously, you know, this is all a grand conspiracy and stuff. And, and we're being suppressed by West coast liberals, but I don't know. Am I right? Yeah. I think uh, whatever I wrote about FBI and Twitter, when I wrote that article is now a lot worse than I actually put in that article from what, I right. read right the control. I, mean, of... I just read that that Ron Paul came out and said we need to get rid of the FBI. <laughs> just get rid of the FBI. <laughs> well, I you know uh, the the other thing I think that's a problem with the left is who is going after Matt Taibbi, uh, Sam Cedar, uh, other people. He's now described as the conservative reporter. You know, he's he's not a conservative. He's I, I the same no, thing happened. Uh, the same thing happened with Russia Gate. He broke Russia Gate, and um, he was attacked for that by the left. Taibi, Taibi, yeah, Rolling what? Stone um, re reporter. And, I don't yeah. I don't share politics with Taibi or Glenn Greenwald. But I respect one thing about them, and that is they're really flaming liberals. I mean, there are very few liberals left who believe in the universality of rights. And so when you have a right to free speech, they believe it's a genuine universal right to free speech, that the left, the right, the center. And they also believe that if you, if you concede any of that away, it's gone. And so, you know, we have a situation where they're being... Uh, they're being demonized, as, as you say, Pat, by much of the left, much of the liberal centrist left is saying, oh, no, you're you're supporting uh, Russia, you're supporting uh, Trump, you're supporting the right, all this stuff. They're just consistent liberals. And, and unfortunately, no one wants to be one anymore. I'm not one, but I never pretended to be one. I pretended to be one on a podcast. So... Hey, tell me about uh, Maduro government and the um, Congress passing the Bolivar Act. Um, you're probably one of the leading go-to people on what's going on in Central America. Um, provide us some background about that and how... Well, I think there is an issue now in the government about whether, you know, we need to... Uh loosen all the blockade that the i shouldn't say we the u.s should loosen its blockade on venezuela which i mean it's not working right they had a blockade like they've had on cuba for ages it's uh still cuba's still suffering under it much almost like it was suffering in the 1990s but uh, venezuela is uh improving and getting out of the blockade i guess because it has more resources has oil and uh the u.s needs to uh europe uh, needs oil since the u.s basically said you can't have your oil where you gas from russia anymore right now they're in a position where like they're gonna get screwed or they are being screwed and so there's more pressure on to like 
let us get more Venezuelan oil. And um, I, the U.S. did make some agreement to let Chevron in Venezuela uh, to some extent, not very much, but um, if they'd be producing oil, I don't think so, no. It would all have to be sold by the Venezuelan government. But uh, there is more pressure on the U.S. government to uh, make some concessions on all the sanctions and blockade on Venezuela. The, the Senate just voted 100 to nothing, I guess, to say, no, don't do that. that I was kind of surprised by that, but... Uh, Uh, it certainly means that I don't think Alex Saab is going to get out of prison, even though the government case against them is is just totally bogus, as it's shown in court. Get get some background about that. Tell us about that. That's what you well, he was one of the Venezuela figure that was uh, finding ways to import food and medicine and gas to Venezuela back some. Four, three years ago when it was in a really terrible situation right and he was like the, a key person in finding ways for venezuela to get around the u.s blockade and so the u.s wanted to nab him and find out how he was doing it and he's a he's a dip, venezuelan diplomat and they still nabbed him and arrested him and had him in prison almost three years now and his trial was in a was hearing now before a judge, it was, you know, can the U.S., he's a diplomat, the U.S. has to release him. You can't arrest and imprison diplomats. That's against Geneva Convention. And the U.S. is trying to keep him in prison. I thought, well, if the U.S. Um, is going to relent a little on the sanctions and blockade, maybe they would let him go somehow. But if the Senate just voted a hundred nothing, well, I mean, how many people were there? But whoever was there was unanimous to maintain the blockade on Venezuela. Then it doesn't seem like he's gonna be. They're gonna find him guilty of not being a diplomat, even though he's got diplomatic passports. He was when they arrested him. He had a formal diplomatic mail from Venezuela to uh, Iran and a letter from the president and another letter from the vice president of Venezuela to the uh, Ayatollah of Iran. I mean, obviously, someone who has that in his suitcase is not just some average guy on an airplane. He's a diplomat. Right. And they're, I don't know what's this. It's going to be hard struggle to get him freed as I mean the US I mean they've done that before with other people like Cuban five they just concocted a case against them Mumia Abu Jamal they just concocted a case against them Leonard Peltier they openly admitted they had no evidence they actually shot anybody but still he's life in prison for murder so keep going Julian Assad yeah him too <laughs> yes Black Panther Party. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you can just you in your second list, you just you had a list of, you know, just going on and on and on of that, that pattern. So if they if it serves the political interests of the US rulers, they're going to uh, the law doesn't matter. They're just like, forget it. Judges well, will be to write some excuse saying why he's not a diplomat. Right. Maybe they'll say, well. He was appointed by Maduro, and we don't recognize Maduro as president of Venezuela, so therefore he's not a diplomat. I don't know what they're going to come up with, but I'm now. And since this came out, the final day of the hearing, I think, is today. Since this came out between during the break between the last week and this week, I would assume this is a signal of what they expect the outcome of this hearing is going to be. That's going to be against uh, Alex Saab. We'll watch it. You're uh, you're, you're certainly an expert on on Latin American affairs. What what's going on in Peru? Well, I haven't followed that that closely, but uh, 
It seems like a coup like they had in Bolivia, 2019. The right-wing coup to overthrow a progressive president. But I don't think uh, the people are as organized as they were in Bolivia. And I guess I think the opposition is stronger than it was in Bolivia. And... Um, I don't think the Castillo, the president who was overthrown, I think he made a lot of mistakes, which made his situation worse. So I don't know what will happen there. But it's certainly a threat. In Latin America, in South America, there's only one other right-wing government that's in uh, Ecuador. Right. It seems like, well, if the U.S. can pull off a right-wing coup in, in Peru, would all these other governments that are say they're progressive, that's uh, pretty telling of what, well, what might they be planning in the future? Sure, the U.S. is not, uh, they're going to try to overturn these, well, they, of course, they're going to be trying to overturn all these governments. That's what they do all the time. How about how about Colombia? Uh, the question there, I think the last I looked at it was whether or not the military was going to kind of stand down. They're pretty strong and independent and, and not necessarily controllable. Any any thoughts that that's going to work out? Well, the U.S. is not going to give up that place. Oh, really? Too many resources? Yeah, and they have three U.S. military bases there. The president of, of Colombia has already said he'd be happy to work with U.S. military to help put out fires in the Amazon, which, uh, whatever that, since when has the U.S. military been firefighters? Fighters, I don't know. And I think I, I read recently that the number of political murders this year is higher than it was last year. And even when this Petro has been president, so it's like, I guess it's like in the United States. Well, I'm sure it is that there's a, the president and the state that looks like the state that runs the country. And then there's the real military national security state or deep state that runs the country. Right. It's hard to separate the two. Well, yeah, the, the the real military state, I'm sure, is the one that really runs the country, not unless they have a full revolution and just destroy it, which they haven't had. So I don't know what would happen in Colombia. You know, is, is a, lot of, a lot of these new progressive government, like in, in Argentina and Chile, and uh, I suppose it's going to be the case in Brazil, they're going to be very limited and very weak. They're not going to be strong anti-imperialist governments. Maybe mildly critical of the United States, but I'm sure they're going to be compromising an awful lot with the U.S. Is that because of the balance of forces in those countries? Yes, that and. U.S. military, the U.S. control in those countries is still pretty strong. I mean, if they did, uh, and I guess, I mean, you know, if you're going to have a revolution in your country, you know pretty well what's going to happen to you. The U.S. is going to do to you. They don't invade, they and they don't you. send in some proxy army, and they don't destroy it like Syria. They at least put on a major blockade. So they, they're faced with that. I mean, well, the, Nick, Cuba had to do that in the 60s. Nicaragua had to do that in the 80s. Venezuela had to do that for uh, since the, when since Chavez died. It would just be uh, U.S. plays real serious hardball, and they have a lot of corporate interests there. And a lot of friends and all their military have basically gone to the School of Americas. So they're all propagandized with the U.S. point of imperialist point of view right. on who should be in charge. 
While you're talking, Stan, I Googled how many people have died in Venezuela because of U.S. sanctions. It's a couple years old, but as many as 40,000 people have died in Venezuela as a result of U.S. sanctions, uh, including lack of food access, medicine, medical equipment, report. You know, I, that, yeah, that was an me, that's a big deal. You know, that's a big deal. Uh, but it's just. I, you know, they're communists or they're socialists or what, you know, we, we, we don't even, we dehumanize them, you know, and um, it makes, um, I don't know, I, it's, it's so frustrating. Yeah, and that was, a, that was a period of a year and a half. I think 19, 2017, 2018, now it's 2022, so I don't know how has to be way over a hundred thousand but at least now the economy is improving and the government is doing a lot of programs to make sure that people get food mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so no one goes without but it's the first time i went there was 2008 and the last time was last year 2000 clearly a, a major drop in the average standard of living of the people but it is slowly improving are but, you pessimistic or optimistic stan about uh, uh south america and central america and its future i mean how do you feel about how things are going and uh what do you think needs to happen well i think the whole world was is shocked that Maduro is still president of Venezuela. I think they assumed that the U.S. would have gotten rid of him by now. I wasn't old enough in the 60s to know what they thought, how they thought about Fidel Castro still being around. I suppose it was the same. They must have thought, well, this guy is not going to be around long. Right. Everybody must have thought that. But so that's a big... Uh, that's a big inspiration and a big obstacle, big inspiration to people and a big obstacle to the United States. And now Venezuela has better relations with the other Latin American countries now. So the U.S. is in a weaker position. And also China is economically more involved in Latin America. So they have more economic influence in those countries. They don't have to be so beholden to u.s corporate interests like they used to back in the 60s or 70s but i it i'm not sure how it'll go <laughs> now the u.s is like it's like in the war in the ukraine i'm not sure how it's gonna go it's uh the u.s still has the possibility of winning but it's people fighting against it also have a possibility of winning. Depends if they make anybody makes a big mistake, which I don't know. Did you happen to see Stephen Gowan's article on China and uh, the lifting of the COVID restrictions? His thoughts about that. No. Um, one of the um, one one of his one of one of his opinions is that um the lockdown was necessitated by the fact they just don't have the infrastructure for medical support uh, you know as much as uh, they have improved in the quality of life and getting people out of poverty uh, they they spend a fraction of what we spend in our per capita medical um expenditures and they literally just don't have the hospital structures, emergency rooms, so forth to manage this. So part of the lockdown was the only way they systematically could control the epidemic uh, through that um, through that means. And that uh, the the pressure to relieve it was by you know cook and Apple and the fact that a lot of our supply chain was being impacted by the you know their lockdown, policies so it was us that kind of pushed them into changing some of these um policies which mean there'll be millions of people that will die but you know we'll get our iphones i guess um 
Anyway, what, what do you think about that, uh, Greg? You you saw that article, didn't you? Yeah, I saw the article, and you know, I I hold Gowans in the highest regard, and 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 his he doesn't speak without uh, some knowledge of what he's talking about, unlike so many people. On the other hand, I I don't trust necessarily the Western accounts of what's going on in China. So that uh, I I don't know yet. I saw in today's Wall Street Journal that there the Chinese have said that there are two deaths since they stopped the lockdown, two deaths. Now, and they say, oh, well, that's probably uh, not true. There's probably many more because they cite this crematorium in, in uh, Beijing that they always go to. Uh, I, I think it's, you got to wait and see. I mean, uh, it's it's a huge country with a complex uh, uh, leadership. Uh, we'll see where they go. I mean, we'll see what uh, happens with it. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, and it's, this is the most apparent thing. We have a million one or a million two people who died because of COVID because we didn't lock down. Because of the lockdown, the last number I saw was three, four thousand in a country of 1.4 billion. So it, it effectively worked. In my simple worldview, that means it worked. Now, where it's going to go from here? Are they surrendering to Apple? Are they surrendering to uh uh, the folks in Taiwan, uh, what's it called, the uh, Foxcom? I, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I certainly, I certainly value whatever uh, Stephen Gowan says. I know he's, he's quite a student, and uh, so we'll see. China is—it's <laughs> kind of an enigma. I mean, I think that's the best way to keep it. We don't have access to much more than propaganda regard to China. Father. Well, Last time I went there was in 2019, and I've been to Japan and all of, mostly Western Europe, all of Western Europe, and all around the U.S. But when I went to China in 2019, I thought, wow, this is the first time I've been somewhere where it looks like the U.S. is a third world country. Mm. So I don't know why they say it doesn't have the infrastructure. They have an amazing infrastructure there well it was it's pretty, I think it's, a big, big problem they have in china is that there's a, a lot of older people are not vaccinated i mean mm. i live in a basically uh right next to chinatown in chicago and a lot of chinese they don't get vaccinated they don't want to get vaccinated that's not what they do for they have their own medicine they they all wear masks Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I think the Chinese government's worried a lot of pe older people are going to die from uh, since they're not vaccinated. They're starting a big vaccine program now to get them vaccinated, but they don't force anybody to get vaccinated. And I don't know if their vaccines are any better than U.S. vaccines, which are not that great. Right. But uh, I would have thought they. Well, were, I think you know. It's still a very rural country, and and the dismantling of the people's communes in the eighties uh, dismantled a lot of uh, healthcare. I mean, there was a healthcare system, a socialized healthcare system, a socialized network in the people's communes that was essentially dismantled, and it wasn't replaced or couldn't be replaced except in a private fashion at that time. So in the rural areas, you and I think they concede this. There's still per capita a very poor country. And that's a reflection of the rural areas, not so much the cities, which are much, much better. Uh, but they have their problems, and I think we should uh, find our own uh, uh, our own problems and not worry not not worry about China. The Chinese will worry about China. Well, this is the problem I think you pointed out, Stan. I followed you on your uh, YouTube lecture on North Korea, and also you were on ICSS and did a great job talking about China and. You know, I here, here's a couple of things Steve said uh, that we spend about eleven thousand dollars per capita on healthcare. China spends five hundred. That we've got about thirty-five critical care beds for a hundred thousand. China has three. So even though they are remarkably improving the quality of life and so forth, they literally just don't have as much support, and so that's why their policies. We're we're trying to control this by the by the lockdown. Now, of course, how does that get spun in the United States? Well, they're a Orwellian controlling, you know, a company. You know that they a country that that they don't 
nobody's ever mentioned they might don't have the infrastructure to support an, a pandemic they say oh no you're just authoritarian and and banning the internet and trying to control over control people well you know i i don't i don't know you could have you can have good discussions about that when you have that many people how do you in fact organize your social structure but uh we don't have that conversation and the same as your your thoughts on tell me your thoughts about north korea you you visited north korea didn't you yeah 2013 tell me about that well first i'm about, about i don't think we can compare how much money is spent here as to other countries like i think the u.s spends like um would you say U.S. spends like eleven thousand a year per person? Yeah, 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 just under, and just I under eleven. I, I read in, in Cuba it was like two to three hundred dollars per person. Same as China, then, huh? Uh, the life expectancy in Cuba is higher than the United States. So what this eleventh, uh, where this eleventh hour goes, I don't know. Doesn't matter. Oh yes, you. Oh yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, you know where it goes. No, I don't think you really compare by how much they spend. That's a good point. It's like I can take a dollar, what I can buy with a dollar here compared to a dollar in Cuba or, or China is an awful lot different. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I don't think that would be a good comparison. Right. Yeah, but about well, well let's, let's, let's stick with the United States for a minute. Uh, uh, you, you outlined so well what's wrong with the U.S. left, and I agree, and I think you've done a wonderful job doing that. The question I think that would pop in people's mind is, how do we rectify this? How do we change this? How do we go forward? How do we unite the left? Uh, and what do we unite them around? What are your thoughts about that? Where, 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 where we have to bear the responsibility and not the Chinese or anyone else? Where do we go from here? Well, with this left we have now, I'm not. You would think that uh, some obvious thing. It would seem like. I didn't think of this myself. Someone told me that, well, it would seem like some obvious thing that would get the left a lot of credibility with the working class if they ha all had worked on the campaign to get, you know, national health care. I mean, why would that would benefit all working people in this country? The only people who would be against it would be corporations. But that was all my life as a leftist. I was never a focus of just some tangential in issue same with like uh, raising the minimum wage how come there's no big leftist campaign to demand that the minimum wage get raised it, there's not it's uh it, it seems that they're didn't they're not really focused on really working class issues i mean that would seem like obvious issues if you're a pro worker that's what you would be fighting for that would unite the most people and be the most popular with the population i i think any kind of uh new working class left wing is going to come out of the working class struggles going on now like in the railroad workers or the uh i don't know starbucks workers are going to be that significant in the economy they're rather small, but I guess it would be an example for other workers who want to stand up and fight back. But I think it would just have to be it, the working class left wing would just have to be rebuilt in the working class struggles, which are going to happen sooner or later. I mean, they are happening. They just get uh, squashed. Right. But eventually, I guess they won't be able to keep on squashing them. And why there's no even the trap not in, is they're pushed into the Democratic Party. I mean, the, the issues are there. There are lots of people advocating for uh, a minimum wage, but it gets pushed into the Democratic Party and left to the politicians to to make happen. How do we get around that? Well, well, like with the uh, the railroad workers, the Democratic Party just basically told them to go drop dead. It's like you're not going to get. We can give. 70 or 80 or how much it is 90 billion dollars to ukraine but you want seven days uh sick sick pay a year no can't afford it so can can you can you imagine 
the gravitas and power that Biden would have had if he said, you know, I know this is going to be a hit on the economy, but I'm standing with these people. We need to get them. We need to get their their sick leave. Um, in the long term, I think it would have had remarkable um, benefit. But the, you know, there's just not a word, not a word of support for them. Um, how do you think unions get what they want? They get it through their strikes. They don't yes. get it by, you know, I, I'm sorry, that's how it works. Right. And uh, uh, so disappointing. And I, I don't know. I think you're right. I think it might it might come through labor and organizing, and you know, hopefully, hopefully that'll that'll happen. But it's trickle, trickle, trickle. But I think you know, I I read that if you gave what railroad workers a seven days sick day, seven sick days a year, it would cost two hundred and thirty million dollars. Two hundred thirty million, which is like. <laughs> U.S. has given like 80 or 90 billion dollars to Ukraine. They don't have 230 million for railroad workers. That's uh, unreal. It's not going to be any hit in the economy. I think it's the fact that they're worried about, well, if the if we let workers know that they organize, they can organize and win, then that's going to set an example for other workers that we don't want have them to let them set we want to keep them down so we don't want to give them anything even you know it doesn't make any economic problem for us it's just like the example of them striking or, or fighting and winning is uh something a they'll give other workers an idea and then what are they going to do if such a thing starts to spread around the country which Sooner or later, it's going to spread around the country because American standard of living is continually going down every year. And eventually, it's going to be too much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Stan, we've been about an hour. Boy, you were breath of fresh air. I'm I'm glad I discovered you. And um, a little later than Greg discovered you, but um, you, you are prolific in your writing and uh insightful and i love when you write you often cite your work <laughs> where you get your information from a lot of footnotes and links that uh uh is is something i enjoy when i read people um any any new projects that you're doing any books in the works uh no <laughs> no books huh i might uh I did write something about is U.S. empire actually in, in decline or not. I might might redo that and make it shorter so maybe it'll get wider spread because in my opinion, it's not in decline. Our because... standard of living of the American people is in decline, but it doesn't. I don't see anything that shows the U.S. empire is in decline. They can and, be in this war in this U in the Ukraine. They can keep the blockade on Cuba, no matter what the rest of the world says, and just blow them off. They can send their ships through the straits between Taiwan and China, and China doesn't do much about it. It's like it doesn't strike me as it's in decline. At least it's not in decline like it was. Was when it was in decline when I in my memory it was in 74 75 76 77 the end of world, uh, vietnam war it was in a pretty weak position i don't think us is not in that kind of weak position today as it was in the late mid late 70s is that the power of the dollar do you think it's just that nobody can the 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 economics the stranglehold that we have over people through our financial and the military, no. And we, the military. We can blow your country to bits, or we can blockade it and reduce everybody basically to like horrible conditions. And then not talk about it. Right. And then, you know, the all this compatible left will say, well, this was a humanitarian thing that we did. Right. Which is what they're that they said about the destruction of Libya and Syria. Now, 
total destruction of Ukraine. It's like it's some humanitarian cause we're involved in. Right. Write it. I'll read it. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Okay. Thank you for having me on. En enjoy, enjoy Chicago for me. Watch out for the storm, Stan. It's coming. Yeah. I know. I got about a day or so. Good. So whatever I got to do, I got to do, go do it now before it's snow. It'll come to your place too, right? Yeah. yeah no, we we live in the Paris of the Appalachians. All right. <laughs> goodbye now. Okay. Bye. Hey, Take hey. care. Thanks.